welcome back, ghosts, ghouls, and things that go bump in the night. You know, as we're getting ready for the holiday season, it seems only appropriate to find a classic for this time of year. Now, the first thing that popped into my head when I was thinking of what we could do for the next couple of weeks was a Christmas story. You know, the one by Dickens, not just a Christmas story in general. Christmas Carol, if you will. But that just seems so cliched. So how about, instead of that, you sit down, relax, and tune in for Charles Dickens' story the trial for murder. I have always noticed a prevalent want of courage, even among persons of superior intelligence and culture, as to imparting their own psychological experiences when those have been of a strange sort. Almost all men are afraid of what they would relate to in such a wise, would no one parallel or respond in a listener's internal life and might be suspected or laughed at. A truthful traveler who would have seen some extraordinary creature in the likeness of a sea serpent would have no fear of mentioning it, but the same traveler, having had some singular presentiment, impulse, vagary of thought, vision, so-called dream, or other remarkable mental impression, would hesitate considerably before he would own to it. To this reticence I attribute much of the obscurity in which such subjects are involved. We do not habitually communicate our experiences of these subjective things as we do our experience of objective creation. The consequence is that the general stock of experience in this regard appears exceptional, and really is so in respect of being miserably imperfect. In what I am going to relate, I have no intention of setting up, opposing, or supporting any theory whatsoever. I know the history of the bookseller of Berlin. I have studied the case of the wife of a late astronomer royal, as related by Sir David Brewster, and I have followed the minutest details of a much more remarkable case of spectral illusion occurring within my private circle of friends. It may be necessary to state, as this is the last of the sufferer, a lady, was in no degree, however distant, related to me. A mistaken assumption on that head might suggest an explanation on the part of my own case, but only a part, which would be wholly without foundation. I cannot be referred to my inheritance of any developed peculiarity, nor had I ever, before any of all singular experience, nor have I ever had any at all similar experience since. It does not signify how many years ago, or how few, a certain murder was committed in England, 
which attracted great attention. We hear more than enough of murderers as they rise in succession to their atrocious emittance, and I would bury the memory of this particular brute, if I could, as his body was buried in Newgate Jail. I purposely abstained from giving any direct clue to the criminal's individuality. When the murder was first discovered, no suspicion fell, or, I rather ought to say, for I cannot be too precise in my facts, it was nowhere publicly hinted that any suspicion fell on the man who was afterwards brought to trial. As no reference was at that time made to him in the newspapers, it is obviously impossible that any description of him can, at that time, have been given in the newspapers. It is essential that this fact be remembered. Unfolding at breakfast my morning paper, containing the account of that first discovery, I found it to be deeply interesting, and I read it with close attention. I read it twice, if not three times. The discovery had been made in a bedroom, and, when I laid down the paper, I was aware in a flash, rush, flow, I don't know what to call it, no word I can find is satisfactorily descriptive, in which I seemed to see that bedroom passing through my room, like a picture impossibly painted on a running river. Though almost instantaneous in its passing, it was perfectly clear, so clear that I distinctly, and with a sense of relief, observed the absence of the dead body from the bed. It was in no romantic place that I had this curious sensation, but, in chambers in Piccadilly, very near to the corner of St. James Street, it was entirely new to me. I was in my easy chair at the moment, and the sensation was accompanied with a peculiar shiver which started the chair from its position. But, it is to be noted that the chair ran easily on casters. I went to one of the windows, there were two in the room, and the room is on the second floor, to refresh my eyes with the moving objects down in Piccadilly. It was a bright autumn morning, and the street was sparkling and cheerful. The wind was high. As I looked out, it brought down from the park a quantity of fallen leaves, which a gust took and whirled into a spiral pillar. As the pillar fell and the leaves dispersed, I saw two men on the opposite side of the way, going from west to east. They were one behind the other. The foremost man often looked back over his shoulder. The second man followed him, at a distance of some thirty paces, with his right hand menacingly raised. First, the singularity and steadiness of his threatening gesture in so public a thoroughfare attracted my attention, and next, the more remarkable circumstance that nobody heeded it. Both men threaded their way among the other passengers with a smoothness hardly consistent even with the action of walking on a pavement, and no single creature that I could see gave them place, touched them, or looked after them. In passing before my windows, they both stared up at me. I saw their two faces very distinctly, 
and I knew that I could recognize them anywhere. Not that I had consciously noticed anything very remarkable in either face, except for the man that went first had an unusually lowering appearance, and the face of the man who followed him was the color of impure wax. I am a bachelor, and my valet and his wife constitute my whole establishment. My occupation is in a certain branch bank, and I wish that my duties as head of the department were as light as they were popularly supposed to be. They kept me in town that autumn, when I stood in need of a change. I was not ill, but I was not well. My reader is to make the most that could be reasonably made of my feeling jaded, having a depressing sense upon me of a monotonous life. I am assured by my renowned doctor that my real state of health at the time justifies no stronger description, and I quote his own from his written answer to my request for it. As the circumstances of the murder, gradually unraveling, took stronger and stronger possession of the public mind, I kept them away from mine, by knowing as little about them as was possible in the midst of the universal excitement but I knew that a verdict of willful murder had been found against the suspected murderer, and I knew that he had been committed to Newgate for trial. I also knew that his trial had been postponed over one sessions of the Central Criminal Court on the ground of general prejudice and want of time for the preparation of the defense. I may further have known, but I did not believe it, when, or about when, the sessions to which his trial stood postponed would come on. My sitting room, bedroom, and dressing room were all on one floor. With the last, there is no communication but through the bedroom. True, there is a door on it, once communicating with the staircase, but a part of the fitting of my bath has been, and had been for some years, fixed across it. At the same period, and as part of the same arrangement, the door had been nailed up and canvassed over. I was standing in my bedroom late one night, giving some directions to my servant before he went to bed. My face was towards the only available door of communication with the dressing room, and it was closed. My servant's back was towards that very door. While I was speaking to him, I saw it open, and a man look in who very earnestly and mysteriously beckoned to me. That man was the man who had gone second among the two along Piccadilly, and whose face was that of the color of impure wax. The figure, having beckoned, drew back and closed the door. With no longer pause than was made by my crossing the bedroom, I opened the dressing room door and looked in. I had a lighted candle already in my hand, I felt no inward expectation of seeing the figure in the dressing room, and I did not see it there. Conscious that my servant stood amazed, I turned round to him and said, Derek, would you believe that in my cool senses I fancied I saw a... As I there laid my hand upon his breast, with a sudden start he trembled violently and said, Oh Lord, yes sir, a dead man beckoning. Now. I do not believe this John Derrick, 
my trusty and attached servant for more than twenty years, had any impression whatsoever of having seen any such figure until I touched him. The change in him was so startling when I touched him that I fully believe he derived his impression in some occult manner from me at that very instant. I bade John Derrick bring some brandy, and I gave him a dram and was glad to take one myself. Of what had preceded that night's phenomenon, I told him not a single word. Reflecting on it, I was absolutely certain that I had never seen that face before, except on the one occasion in Piccadilly. Comparing his expression when beckoning at the door, with its expression when it had stared up at me as I stood at my window, I came to the conclusion that on the first occasion it had sought to fashion itself upon my memory, and on the second occasion it had made sure of being immediately remembered. Though I was not very comfortable that night, though I felt a certainty, difficult to explain, that the figure would not return, at daylight I fell into a heavy sleep, from which I was awakened by John Derrick's coming to my bedside with a paper in his hand. The paper, it appeared, had been the subject of an altercation at the door between its bearer and my servant. It was a summons to me to serve upon a jury at the forthcoming sessions of the Central Criminal Court at the Old Bailey. I had never before been summoned on such a jury, as John Derrick well knew. He believed, I am not certain at this hour whether with reason or otherwise, that this class of juror were customarily chosen on a lower qualification than mine, and he had at first refused to accept the summons. The man who served it had taken the matter very coolly. He said that my attendance, or non-attendance, was nothing with him. There the summons was, and I should deal with it at my own peril, and not at his. For a day or two, I was undecided whether or not to respond to his call, or take no notice of it. I was not conscientious of the slightest mysterious bias, influence, or attraction one way or the other. Of that I am as strictly sure as of every other statement that I make here. Ultimately, I decided, as a break in the monotony of my life, that I would go. And that, listeners, is part one of The Trial for Murder by Charles Dickens. Do you think it was a ghost that the man saw? standing in his bedroom tune in next week to find out what will happen in the trial for murder but until next time my wonderful listeners stay spooky and remember sometimes it's more than just a story <laughs> <laughs>